Hey, this is Joe Bakmotsky, and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. I found out about Stan by reading his book called Loving, Supporting and Caring for the Cancer Patient. And to be honest, I loved it. It really spoke to me because it covers all the difficult topics that come with talking to someone with cancer. Because sometimes you just don't know what to say or do. And it also talks about how to deal with cancer yourself. And Stan is a really deep thinker. He uses his own cancer experience to really distill it down, distill his kind of wisdom into practical ways of dealing with cancer right now. So let's go ahead and meet Stan. Stan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I love your book, Loving, Supporting and Caring for the Cancer Patient. Tell me, how did that come about? How did the book or how did my interest in cancer? Both. (laughs) Okay. Well, I developed prostate cancer at 57. And it wasn't unexpected because my PSAs had been high. And the rectal exam always showed something that was, was not right within the gland. So, you know, I always had a suspected it. And so when it finally was diagnosed, it came as a shock, as it does for almost anybody who gets a diagnosis of cancer. And what I started experiencing was the kinds of reactions that I thought were odd from some people and were were very genuine from others. So one of the things that kept coming up was when people heard I had cancer and they and that I neither I nor the oncologist knew the outcome of it was was a standard phrase which was I'm so sorry to hear that <laughs> uh, and then sometimes that was the end of the conversation and at other times another statement followed which is what can I do what can I do to help well As I started talking to other people with cancer and counseling them, I found that what people said to me wasn't unique and that it was something that almost every person that I've spoken to who's had cancer has said to me, yeah, you know, good friends will say, you know, I'm so sorry. And then, you know, and then there's nothing afterwards. So what I wanted to do was to come up with a book for people who knew someone who had cancer and essentially said, you know, there's a lot of things you can do. There's a lot of things that you can start by with understanding about what someone who has cancer goes through. And then there's different things that you can learn to do. So instead of somebody saying, you know, geez, I'm so sorry to hear about what you're going through, to have them say, I'm so sorry to hear what you're going through, and I know that it's important for me to get out every day. So why don't I come here tomorrow at 10? We'll go for a walk. So it was many things as simple as that. Uh, So that that brought about the book. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Because it kind of sounds to me like, I don't think this uh, comes from my own experience, that most people in your life, your friends, your family, they want to help. They genuinely want to be there for you, but they just don't know how, and, and, and we have to guide them. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think, that, I think it's, it's a two-point process. One is, yes, you need to guide them. But the other thing is, what I've found is that there's a lot of people that are so afraid of death and so afraid of cancer that even though they want to help, 
it's scary for them to do that. So it's almost as if, you know, if I'm going to acknowledge that your life is finite and that I may lose you, what it says, it, it reflects back on myself. If I'm okay with accepting death as a part of living, then I can go ahead and I can help you. I can do things that other people may seem as impossible to do in terms of healthcare or other things. But if I am so afraid of dying that to put myself in contact with you increases my fears, then that person needs to, to work on themselves before offering you help. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So those people who are uncomfortable, as you said, with death and dying, how do they come to terms with that reality? You know, I think if I knew that answer, this would be a wonderful world to live in. <laughs> um, I mean, if, if you look back historically, you know, in the Middle Ages, when death was rampant from the Black Plague and other things, People accepted death as if, you know, that's just a part of living. That, that's what we do. We die young. And so it wasn't something that you were afraid of because you saw it every day. I think as we became more civilized, more industrialized, we tried to make death something that was easier to accept. So we didn't talk about grandma dying. We talked about grandma going to sleep forever. You know, we didn't talk about Uncle Joe's death. We talked about Uncle Joe going on a long journey. Instead of viewing the corpses in their natural state, we sent them to special places where they were painted and made to look like they were alive. You know, so we, we've done so many different things to hide death that it's, it's not surprising that we are afraid of it because we put it off to the side. So I, I think that a way of getting people to be more accepting of death is to have them start talking about it a lot earlier. It was interesting. I got an email message from a ninth grader in New York City who wanted to interview me about living with cancer. And I thought, a ninth grader? How wonderful <laughs> is that? So of course I did the interview, but we, we spent some time talking. And I said, how is it possible that you want to explore a topic that 95% of adults were afraid of discussing? And he told me that you know, his, his grandmother has cancer and he knows she's going to die and he wants to understand it a lot better. So I think there's hope. I, I think the younger we start talking about death to people, the easier it will be for them to accept it. When I was diagnosed, both of my children were adults, and we started immediately talking about my death. Now, this was 16 years ago, and what I tried to instill with them then is to realize there will come a time when I'm not going to be able to fight my cancer anymore, unless a bus hits me first. And when that happens, they need to accept it. And until that time, we need to live our lives as if today was my last day. And for them and my wife, that's working. That's a powerful transition, Stan. Because I think it's I think it's possibly also a reason why being diagnosed with cancer is such a shock. Because it just kind of hits you and it kind of stays with you, doesn't it? It does. But it, it transforms in different ways. 
I think when, when I was first diagnosed and I heard the, the diagnosis that you have cancer and we're really not sure what the prognosis is, it was almost I went into shock. Now, you know, I mean, a lot of people really don't think about emotional shock to be the same as physical shock, but it is. Both forms of shock just debilitate you. So, you know, when I heard that, because my assumption was, you know, cancer, death, uh, cancer, horrible experiences, death. And it's just, you know, the, the analogy keeps going on and on. And what I learned, not from my cancer, but I learned from the people that I served in hospice, is there's different ways of approaching ideas about the end of your life. And the most important thing that I learned from my patients was that the way that you live will determine how you die. And if I live fearing every day, fearing every piece of food I'm going to put in my mouth, I'm going to die with a lot of those fears. But if I turn that on its head and say, you know, who knows how soon I'm going to die? I can't, I may not be able to do anything about that, although I'm trying. But what I can do is make every day that I am alive work and be meaningful. And to me, that was the big lesson. And if I have to thank cancer for anything, and I'm reluctant to do that, that would be it. Because it essentially gave me a new understanding of how I wanted to live my life for as long as I have. But I would have preferred to learn that from a crazy uncle in a bar over a beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Stand. And I couldn't agree with you more that, you know, if we live each day as if it was the last, that really makes a huge difference into how you see yourself, how do you experience your life, because you kind of just live in the moment and all of those fears and thoughts about cancer and all the horrible things that might happen, they kind of just go away, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I recently wrote an article and it was about complacency and living with cancer. And the reason that I wrote it is now for 16 years, my oncologist and I have kept very good tracking of my cancer. And for some of your uh, audience who doesn't know about how cancer works, there's a measure called a PSA. And a PSA is a measure of a protein that can that prostate cancer cells produces. So after you've been treated or waiting to be treated, the oncologist will look at measures of PSA. The higher the PSA, the more active your cancer cells are. The lower the PSA, the less active. Now he measures that along with measures of testosterone, you know, the male hormone. Testosterone is the, the main ingredient that can feed cancer cells. So the idea is you keep your testosterone low, and if everything is working as it should, the cancer cells PSA will also remain low. And you can live with that indefinitely. So that's what's been happening for 16 years. So it's, it's been this perfect correlation. Keep the testosterone low, PSA stays low. But recently, that's been changing somewhat. And it's taking longer for the PSA to become undetectable. 
Now, when it becomes undetectable, that's when we stop the injections and we wait until it rises and we start injections again and we, we knock it down. You know, it's, it's like it's like a heavyweight fight where you have a, a punch drunk fighter in there and you, you know, whenever it's appropriate, you hit him and he goes down. Well, <laughs> my punch drunk cancer cells are getting up a little quicker now. So it's become apparent that it's taking longer to knock them down. And not only that, but we think that there are some that are now learning to get their nourishment from things other than testosterone. So that's the beginning of the next phase of my cancer. So I wrote this article. Essentially, it was not so much to share with people the stage that I'm at, but rather to have them understand that after a number of years of everything being fine, you become somewhat complacent. And I did. I was complacent about how I was leading my life. That changed when we looked at the data. And I realized that I probably still have a lot of time left, but I don't know how much. And I've been wasting a lot of it by being complacent about my life. So I wrote the article, lots of response, a lot of people read it. And it was interesting to see the reactions of people. There were some people who clearly had read my book on being compassionate to cancer patients and had internalized it. And these, these were not only friends, but these were some acquaintances, some people I didn't even know. And the way they responded was, okay, so let me do this or let me do that or what can I do? It was real clear that, that they, you know, they internalized the message of the book. There were other people, and a lot of them were relatives, who still were so afraid of losing me they couldn't make that leap. It was, I'm so sorry to hear about that. And that's where it stopped. So, you know, I just found it interesting the way people react, how, how differently they react depending upon what their view of, of death is. It's, I guess it's almost selfish, right? Because when you are saying, I'm so sorry, and it kind of becomes all about you, not about the person who has cancer. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't interpret it as selfish so much, more so as fear. There's so much fear there about their own lives that it's hard to be truly compassionate to someone else. I don't think it's selfish. I think, I mean, that's the circumstances. That, that's the life they've lived. You know, we always, we bring back into our present everything we were in the past. Not only the experiences, but the fears, the loves, etc. So, you know, whenever someone says something to me that is not quite right, instead of judging them, what I usually try to do is say, what's the context? What's the context in which they made that, that statement? And when I do that, I'm usually much more understanding of their reactions, even though I don't, you know, I'd like the reaction that I would get. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Stan, I had a really good laugh when I read your initial email. I think you sent some time to your family and, and friends about being diagnosed with cancer. <laughs> what really made me laugh was that their reaction was almost identical to, I guess, people in my life. So tell me, how did it all come about and how did your people react? Well, you know, I look at that email was sort of the culmination of my past life. Now, when I say past life, I'm not talking about different universes, but my life before cancer. I was a university professor, very rigid. I analyzed everything, whether it was some complex clinical program or whether an apple was sufficiently sweet for a treat. So <laughs> I was you know, very structured. 
and very unemotional. And, you know, when I received that diagnosis, the response that, that I should have had was, this is something that's life-threatening, and you should reach out to people who love you, who I know want to help you. That would have been the response I would have liked to have done, but I didn't do that. I remember I just said, talked about context. So I responded in the context of what my life had been. So, you know, it was structured, it was playing down the seriousness of it, it was joking because you, know, you joke about something that you don't have to take it seriously. So it was all of those things that minimize the emotional effects of thinking that you may die. Some people, you know, were very glad they received that kind of email because it made light of something that was potentially deadly. Other people, you know, ask, what are you afraid of? And, and one person was annoyed that I blasted it out to 300 people rather than talking to them individually. So that, that was the background of it. That's why when I wrote this new article, I wasn't, you know, there, there was no humor in there. There was no deflating, you know, the seriousness of what was happening. See, I, I learned. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so people's reactions, that uh, did that surprise you at the time? You know, it didn't because I wasn't concerned about other people's reactions. I mean, I was still, I, I don't know how many weeks I stayed in, a, in an emotional shock. And during that time, you know, I just wasn't concerned. I wasn't concerned how my wife and my adult kids felt. I wasn't concerned how family. It was, hey, I may be dying. This is about me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I also love how you used in your book, uh, like Rashomon, the Japanese classic, to describe how truth and reality are really just based on someone's perspective. So why is that important during cancer? Well, I think one of the, the biggest lessons that at least people tell me that I've taught them, people who I've counseled whose loved ones have cancer, is that they don't understand that living with cancer is like living with a filter. Then everything that you see is filtered through this lens. Someone says, you know, how are you? Just as a matter of courtesy. And you're thinking, is something wrong with my skin? Is, is, am I appearing pale? Someone makes, a, you know, a comment that, geez, you know, why don't you come over for dinner next week? And you may say, what, doesn't he think I can handle my own food, that I can make my own food? So it's like that, not only with cancer, but I found that that occurs with a lot of chronic or acute illnesses. We see the present through our needs and our history. You know, in Rashomon, which is one of my favorite Japanese movies, you know, you had four people observing a murder. You know, one actually was the ghost of the guy who was murdered. But what they did was, when, when you heard them tell the judge what happened, it was real clear that each saw, you know, the murder through their past history and their current needs. And I think, you know, that I think is one of the most important messages that I can send to people whose loved one is living with cancer. You can't assume you understand what they're going through unless you're going through it. So it's a plea for acceptance. You know, when you don't understand something that a cancer patient is saying, or it comes out as a terrible criticism or something very negative, 
step back a moment and think about what their body and their mind is going through. Living with an illness that they don't know when is going to take their lives. Yeah, exactly. That's powerful. And, and it's also about, I think, what you talked about earlier as well. You touched on, it's about offering specific proactive help. So could you talk about some of the things that someone can do to be direct and specific with, with the sort of things that they can kind of come in and help uh, yeah. someone who's going through cancer? I'll, I'll use the example in the article that I wrote. You know, I'm a firm believer in traditional medicine. You know, I will stick with my hormone injections as long as they work. But I also realize that I can do things for myself that fall off of that continuum. Things such as different supplements, uh, meditation, relaxation, different times and different ways of eating, losing weight, and, and the list goes on and on. Now, those are things that I ask people for help, and I have no problem with it. When, I, when we go out for dinner, you know, people will help me select restaurants where they have food they know that I can eat. When we go over to parties, people know to always offer me red wine because there's more antioxidants in red wine than white wine. So there's a whole bunch of things like that. My son knows that my level of strength has diminished over the years. So he doesn't even have to ask to lift things. He just will do it automatically. So I think that if you have a loved one or an acquaintance who is going through either treatment or living with cancer, the first place to start is to ask them, tell me what I can do to help, you know, very specifically. You know, I know you're having chemotherapy next week, and I know that you're going to be weak. So, you know, let me go out and I'm going to shop for you. Or are things like that, you know, you're having trouble organizing, and I know it has to do with the medication. Let me help pay bills with you, you know, and we'll do it every Friday. So there's a lot of things. I mean, there's a whole list, but it varies from person to person. So I think that's the place to begin, the two places to begin. Understand that they're living in a very different world than you are. And two, offer to help doing very specific things that will ease their journey. Yeah, that's great because it's kind of like, I guess, like you were saying in the book, that having cancer is a bit like being in a horror movie when you know that these terrible things are going to happen, but you kind of don't really know when. So you're constantly in the state of not knowing what's going to happen. So tell me, Stan, what's your advice on dealing with uncertainty? What is your advice on living with not being able to predict how things are going to turn out the next day? complicated question, and I probably will give you an inadequate answer, but I start on the premise that life is uncertain, that there are no permanent things, whether it's items, emotions, parts of my body, or anything else. We live in a state of impermanence, you know, a very Buddhist concept. If you really accept that, and you realize that whatever you have is eventually going to leave you or dissolve, then you start with, with a mindset that is different than what I think most people want to hold on to everything. So we start with that. We then say, okay, if the world is uncertain, what can I do 
to increase my sense of stability or certainty. Because, you know, I mean, I can be very Buddhist in my thinking that everything is impermanent, but that doesn't help me when I sit at my desk and I'm annoyed that I can't do something. So what, what I suggest that people do is they start thinking about islands of stability, I call them, or islands of certainty. What are, things are there in your life that gives you a sense of stability, of serenity? I mean, for me, it's, you know, a couple of very simple things. I get up in the morning at 5.30, I make coffee, I answer emails, I take my dog for a run, I come back, play my flute, and exercise. So there are five things that make me feel stable and certain. It's different for everybody else. Now, what I think people can do is explore what makes you comfortable, explore what makes you relaxed. And look at those items as things that you do every day. I mean, some people may look at it and call it ritual. You know, it doesn't make a difference what it's called and how it's configured. These are your islands that you can hold on to, you know, when everything else is in turmoil. Yeah, absolutely. And you have an interesting take on simplicity. So could you talk about that as well? Yeah. You know, as we get older, we accumulate. We not only accumulate things, but we accumulate activities and we accumulate emotions. So we, we never seem to want to give anything up. My brother is about to move to the Bay Area and he and his wife had lived in their house for about 30 years and they can't get rid of anything, you know, but they have to. And it's this dilemma for them. I think that when, when you look at, at how we accumulate, you know, the question is, why? Why do some people become hoarders? Why is it that, that I refuse to let go of a woodworking tool I haven't used in 20 years? <laughs> I think that the answer, at least that, that I've come up with, and it may not be correct, is that we falsely believe that holding on to something from the past is going to create stability in the present. I mean, why else would someone save 25 years of newspapers they haven't read and stack them in their apartment? So I think you know, that's the motivation for why we don't want to give things up. What I believe is that when you can start doing that, when you can simplify your life, you can reduce it down to the basics, to those things that are most essential for your happiness. So, you know, for me, I, I have you know, a couple rules that I use and that, you know, when I look at something that I've written or something in my office, if I haven't touched it in two years, it probably should be thrown away. <laughs> and so I use that. The other thing is I look at, at what I'm doing. What, what will make me happy? Whatever will make me happy, I'll keep. If it doesn't, what's the point? Absolutely. That's, that's a great rule of thumb. I love that. So tell me if someone wanted to find your books, uh, find out more about you, what do they do? Okay, well, I, I have a website, and the website is Stan Goldberg Writer, W-R-I-T-E-R, dot com. And so on that website, there are about 220 articles that I wrote. Is that all? That, that, that's that, for this week. <laughs> And all of the articles either deal directly with cancer or chronic illness or aging or end-of-life issues. But essentially, they all roll up into aging. 
and they're welcome to read them. There's no charge for them. They can download them. They can share them. No problem with that. All of my books are on Amazon, so they can either find them, you know, to see some of the reviews on my website or go directly to Amazon. I also, I was just asked by Ariana Huffington to write for her new website, which is called uh, Thrive Global. So I will be writing articles for them that will also appear on my website. And I am now working on a new book on aging. And it's looking at what are the major problems that those of us who are old experience with aging. And what I've looked at is that most of the problems have to do with transitioning. Transitioning from being middle-aged to old is, is simple, but also transitioning from health to illness, from support to loneliness, a whole variety of, of these transitions. So what I've done is I've looked at the work that I've done on strategies, ways of which you can solve problems, and say, okay, how can I use these strategies to solve the most difficult problems of aging? And that's the book that I'm working on right now. And what I'll be doing is on Ariana's website, most of the new articles that will be published will have to do with aging and obviously tangentially with the acute illnesses like cancer. Yeah, fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to reading that book. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and, and practical advice. It's been fantastic. Thank you for your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and thanks so much for listening. Listen, I just want to take a moment to really thank you for your time, because I know that it's precious, but also I want to congratulate you. I really want to congratulate you on listening to this podcast, because as we both know, cancer is incredibly hard to deal with, and you don't want to go it alone. And you want all the support and all the advice that you can get to, to stay on top of it, to stay on top of your worries during cancer. So I, I want to tell you about the tools that I have available on my website on simplifycancer.com that can really help you. So all of these tools are available under the tools menu on simplifycancer.com. So tool number one, that's the first visit oncologist checklist. So if the word oncologist bothers you, like I, I know it really freaked me out. If you are worried about your first appointment, as, as again, as we all are, then this can really help you with some key questions that you want to ask. The key thing, of course, is having a list like this means that you won't forget something important, which is easy enough to do when, when you've got a million things going through your head. Plus, it's a handy PDF, so it's easy to print and write down all the answers so you don't forget. So then there is the outcome map. Like this is a really simple but really powerful tool that I have developed to help you deal with worries about something specific, something that's bothering you right now. So maybe you're waiting for your test results and your mind's off running in a million different directions. Or maybe you've got an ache or pain and you don't know what it is. Like, is it cancer? Is that a side effect from treatment? Or maybe is that something else altogether? So it will kind of help you to put it all together so you can you can get a bird's eye view and decide how to best deal with it. 
Number three is mastering your emotions during cancer. Now, this is a walk through all the stages that you go through as a patient and as a caregiver through anger and through guilt and fear and how you can address your needs, your emotional needs on every level during cancer. Like it came about after many discussions that I had with my friend and my colleague. Her name is Jill. Her husband had prostate cancer. So, uh, so she has this kind of caregiver's perspective. And we both like talked about how there are so many times, um, when you go through cancer, when you kind of just feel alone and you're struggling, you're on this roller coaster of emotions and it's kind of full on and it's hard to deal with. So there, there's an audio version that comes along with it. And there's a link to download the MP3 if that's what you want, or you can just listen to it online and, you know, and just uh, listen along with the PDF. So another one is testicular cancer support kit. This has a one page summary of what the testicular cancer journey looks like that you can check out for yourself or share with your family or friends. Like it's got a helicopter view of all the symptoms and treatments and who's involved and what happens when. And it's really great one kind of page view of like what happens during testicular cancer. Plus, the kit also includes like ready-to-go email templates for your family, friends, and your workmates. So you can kind of share what's what's happened. Maybe you want to break the news on cancer and you don't want to think about and wreck your brain on what to write. So you can just copy and paste. You can tweak it a little bit so to suit your personality and you're good to go. And I've also done the same thing for prostate cancer. So check out the prostate cancer support kit. Again, it's showing all the treatment options and stages on one page. So you can walk someone through it, like someone from your family or a friend. And they know what to expect and how it all happens. And of course, when you sign up for any of my tools, and we just talked about, you'll also get an email from me when, when there's a new episode that's kind of relevant to you right now and other news from the world of Simplified Cancer. And listen, I'm, I'm going to keep on asking you about how I'm doing here. I mean, are you getting what, you, what you're looking for? Was there something in particular that, that really made sense to you? Or is there a question that you want to ask? Or maybe there's, there's just something that you, you want to get off your chest, like, please, I need to know. Just reply to any of my emails or send me an email right now. My email is joe at simplifycancer.com. So that's J-O-E at simplifycancer.com. And send me an email whenever you've got anything on your mind. So again, I want to thank you for listening. Till next time. 